Thank you very much for your patience. We're back, we're early, and we're going to announce uh, two topics. One of interest this evening, freedom of speech, what does it mean to you? This will be at the uh, University of Lethbridge-Markham Hall. The sheets are on your table if you'd like to look at that. And next week's topic, Dr. Claudia Sheedy will be talking about pesticides in agriculture, past, present, and future. And I think, personally, that'll be very interesting. So we've got a suggestion box to remind you of. If you've got any ideas or thoughts for us or speakers, place it in the lobby in the suggestion box. And our topic are burning issues for our MLAs. We talked a lot at our table. We're 24 months and counting down to the next election. And we are very interested in your questions. Keep your comments brief if you can. Limit yourself to one or two topical questions. Use the microphone provided here and state your name. And we'll welcome back the speaker, MLA Gary Beckman. Thank you, Larry. Well, I've just slipped out and uh, was fitted myself for a, a uh, Kevlar vest, so I'm ready for you. <laughs> Bev, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone, and Gary and I used to be neighbors in Sterling. Uh, Gary, you know that in Lethbridge we are quite irate with the provincial government for allowing Golden Key Oil Incorporated to buy up the mineral rights under <coughs> 23 square kilometers of land on the west side. And we, we feel that the petitions that we have to make to the AER is like, um, that the AER is like the, uh, having the fox guard the hen house. And when the premier says that she's sure the AER will hear our concerns, we are not so sure. So we would like to know what have you done so far, you and the other Wild Rose MLAs as opposition and as listeners to the fine voters of Alberta, what have you done to protect us and other municipalities from the greedy oil companies who wish to pollute our air and our waters through fuming and flacking? Thank you. I anticipated that question. Uh, I, uh, I think that it's a travesty. Uh, of course, Golden Key are following the rules. Uh, they aren't doing anything that's currently illegal. But is it ethical? The question is, should the provincial government uh, respect the rights of municipalities to determine their own destiny, as it were, to determine what's allowable and is appropriate for development within or, with or under, underneath uh, the city? And uh, this current system doesn't allow that. Your concerns about the objectivity of the AER is, uh, is justified. And we raised that issue in the legislature. Uh, who's going to be appointed? Uh, how, how independent will he truly be? And in our experience, too often those people who have so much power over us aren't elected and they aren't accountable uh, to the people that are impacted by uh, these actions. Uh, government central, centrally planning uh, doesn't have the same sense of 
uh, of what's of concern to the people on the ground. So I think the best people to make decisions about the issue that you've raised is Mayor Spearman and the council, because you, they're responsible to you. If, you, if they're doing something that you think's out of line, you're going to raise hell with them, and uh, you're not going to wait for the next election. You're going to be in their face. But that's pretty, and you got access to them through through council meetings, or with the personal interview. Trying to get access to the AR, that's a very expensive uh, process, and it also is very frustrating. So uh, we have spoken out against this kind of thing. Our position will be that the pro uh, under a Wild Rose government, the province will not. Uh, be selling uh, mineral rights underneath cities. My name is Knut Peterson. Okay, thanks for coming. Uh, that's a very reassuring answer. Uh, I won't harp on it, so um, my question relates to the recent bills passed uh, in the legislature, Bill 45 and 46, I believe, and also the uh, way the provincial government is dealing with pension to uh, public sector people. Can you comment on those? You're familiar with those bills, I'm sure. And uh, Yes, I am. I sat in a meeting with Doug Horner and and Minister Hancock, uh, when Bills 45 and 46 were being explained uh, just hours before they were going to be introduced, so we didn't have a lot of opportunity to prepare for them. <coughs> and uh, about right away, we could see that there were two glaring uh, problems with them. Uh, let's stick with Bill 45 first. Uh, and the big problem that we saw wasn't that they were proposing stiff penalties for illegal strikes. It was that they were proposing penalties and fines and perhaps even even jail for uh, people who were even discussing the possibility of a wildcat strike. And we thought that was just a huge overreaction to the issue from the Edmonton Remand Center. Uh, and the, the concerns uh, that were that prompted that specific uh, wa uh, wildcat strike still haven't been addressed. And so that speaks to the fundamental issue of when you're designing a facility, you should take the time to talk to the stakeholders that are impacted by it. I'm not suggesting that you ask the prisoners what they think they'd like, but you could certainly ask the, uh, the guards that are on duty there that have to operate the facility in a safe manner. What are some things that you'd like to see? As a, it, it, when I ran my oil field trucking company, Speedy Heavy Hauling, when it came time to order a new truck, I'd invite the driver to sit down with me. And of course, they all wanted two chrome stacks and aluminum or chrome wheels, but we could deal with, with that. But I said, well, what things will help you do the job better for our customer that will make your life easier when you're behind the wheel and will make it safer for the public and the people we're serving? And then we got great ideas, and the synergy that came from that interaction produced a far better result. In some cases, a result that I say with no, no little degree of pride, or no small degree of pride, but large pride, have been were copied and emulated by their oil, oil field truckers, and so the failure, uh, in my mind, was that the, the government sees itself as having all the answers, and we see that manifest over and over again in the House with legislation proposed without any input from anybody and without any regard really for what we say, because they've already told the the their 60 MLAs how to vote. Um, 
but in, so let's go to bill number, uh, the second bill, bill 46. So that's the reason that we objected to it. And uh, I spoke to it and we voted against it. Uh, bill 46 uh, uh, took away arbitrarily, uh, unilaterally, the right to, to require um, a binding arbitration. And that was a right that was given to the union for the union giving up the right to strike. And that meant relative labor peace and, and no disruptions to the flow of services to us as taxpayers and users of those services. And so we were opposed to that because it was the government choosing which rules and laws that it has to follow. And that's not fair. Equality doesn't mean that you, you know, that I should have as much hair as you, uh, or everybody should be bald. Equality means equality before the law, and subject to the same rules of law, and, a and access to the courts when they do something wrong. Well, when you pass an act, you've changed the law, so that, w that re almost removes your access to the courts. And we've seen that with the property rights bills. So very much against that. And it comes to pensions, um, Again, it's, it's a contract issue, right? There are people that have signed on to, their, uh, to the job that they're doing and have endured, in some cases, uh, difficult situations in their work, fully expecting that the promised benefits would be there for them when they reached that magic age. Uh, and, and now they're pulling the carpet out or threatening to pull the carpet out. Well, we think that's breaking a contract. We don't think that's fair. Now, they may negotiate some new situation or condition for new hires, but that'll be up to Guy Smith and Carl Soderstrom and the leaders of AUPE to negotiate. Now, they'll negotiate tough, and hopefully the government will negotiate tough with our tax dollars too. But what's happened so often in, in situations like this is that the government and the people charged with negotiating are spending other people's money on other people. Now, this is where I'm going to use the board. Uh, the issue, I'm gonna, I'll talk loud, I hope you can hear me. Take the mic. No, take the recording. recording. Good, thank you. Uh, uh, Milton Friedman addressed this issue uh, in his book, Free to Choose, that he co-authored with his wife, Rose. Milton Friedman, as you know, is the Nobel Prize winning economist. He talked about what I call the, uh, I call it the utility of money. A quadrant. Uh, mine, <laughs> others, me, others. So what I've got here is a quadrant that says when I spend my money on me, I'm going to get the best deal I, I want. The best deal I can get. I may be buying a new car and I want it to have Bose stereo and the sunroof and the, the fancy wheels that I just talked about that the truck drivers wanted on the trucks we were buying and leather and backup and, and navigation and everything. But I've got a budget. I know how much I can afford. So I negotiate as hard as I can to get the most mo value for my money. This is the number one efficient use of money. The second is when I'm spending my money on somebody else. Bev, it's your birthday. I've got a budget of 50 bucks. I hope you like the book I bought you, but if not, it's the thought that counts. And you can always take it back, right? So that's the second most efficient use of money. The third is when I'm spending other people's money on me. Yeah, give me the bows, give me the wheels, give me the leather. I don't care what it costs. 
I just want, want, want. So it isn't a case of want and need anymore. It's gimme, gimme, gimme. So that's the third uh, level of efficiency of, of money in the economy. The least efficient is when other people are spending other people's money on other people. Now, who in society does this represent, boys and girls? The government. So the more money the government takes out of the economy, the lower the standard of living must be, because this money is being spent less efficiently. Follow? All right, my lectures are over. Take my professor hat off and go back to being an MLA. Mr. Bickman, I'm glad, I'm glad you came to speak to us. Uh, I remember you, you were managing Speedy Trucking when I was managing as a kid, a big dealership, Rambler dealership next to you. Okay. I made a millionaire out of Mr. Doby at that <laughs> venture, but uh, uh, when I heard who was speaking, I got brand new hearing aids. <laughs> I am you. deeply honored. And I was listening intently. Most people who hear that I'm speaking cut off their hearing aids. Let me do the talking. <laughs> the name is Frank J. Toth. You possibly read my articles whether you live in Ladbridge or Sterling. But anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to hear the long list of misdeeds that are supposed conservative government is, is proceeding. Now, I personally attended a meeting with a buddy of mine at the seniors organization upstairs when your leader is spoken. She was one of seven political leaders we have asked. The most I'm talking, I'm glad you're talking about dollars because that's, that's the question I have for you. Your leader didn't know what our royalties were. The treasurer didn't know the leaders. The NDP, the liberals, no, nobody knows what our royalty is. What the hell is our secret? Now, the question I'm asking you, I know. I had two 09010 auditor's reports in, the, in my pocket when I talked to, asked your leader what our royalties. She wasn't, she says, it's very difficult. She didn't know. Now you, as a representative of the same, same party, what the hell is our royalties? I know, I, I, I got two roy, uh, audit, uh, auditor's reports on it. They we're talking about dollars for my kids. I'm, I'm 91 years old. It's impartial for me, my kids and my grandchildren. What the hell is our royalties? So you're asking not what the royalty rate is, but how much money the government brings in each year from oil royalties. I'm asking what rate are royalties. I asked the premier at the lodge. We paid $25 to attend the conservative meeting, you know, of, of the pretend conservatives. Low heat is rolling around his grave. So the PNPC stands for pretend. What, yeah, okay, what, what is our royalty rates if you're going to run this country? Okay, the, just your leader had said your leaders said, we're not talking about that until we get into power. Because well, we can certainly talk about it, but I can't uh, definitely answer it in any specific. Uh, Paul, you may be able to help me a little bit, but as I understand it, there's different levels of royalty depending upon what state of development the well is, is at. So that wells that include 
the kind that you're afraid of and that we're all concerned about in terms of drilling down and then uh, going uh, horizontal drilling under the city, uh, they have different, uh, different uh, royalty rates. They have uh, royalty holidays for some portion of, uh, of uh, the period of time that that well is productive. And uh, they can manipulate that, quite frankly. They can make it more productive early and less productive later uh, to avoid some royalties. So that is an issue. Uh, Frank, that's a fair question. Uh, Our been given away $300 million of it. Right. So I can't answer any more detail than that. Paul, can you help me? Because you mentioned the oil sands, I'll say what, what the, the law of the land was is that they could have capital allowances. And so if they put in $200 billion, I think it's more like $100 billion, they got to re keep that money rather than pay royalties until they got their capital investment back. And again, that would be a calculation that certainly could be made on how much each of those companies, but the problem was they kept reapplying and they got concerned to the point saying we're going to shut this down. The federal government finally did shut that down. But that, that's very different than the royalty rate, which we do know and can figure out. But it depends on how much the well costs and whether it's a wildcat well. And I mean, they removed the, in at Stelmax time, they actually removed dry wells and said you couldn't put that as part of the expense. And so the government is always changing its rules and regulations on what it is, but the royalty rate is, is fairly clear on how fast a well does, what the area or region is, and, and it can be figured out. And we know like eight or nine billion dollars has come in, in in the revenue. The Auditor General does put that in there, but I hope that answers the question. Oh, the rate was one percent until they got their capital investment back, and then it jumped to twenty-five percent. I'm Mary Shillington. Thanks for being here today. Uh, Shannon Phillips, who was our speaker last week, would be impressed with your response to 45 and 46, those bills. So thank you for that. Uh, but I'm a cynic. Uh, and so... You're a cynic, you said? I am a cynic about uh, conservative governments and probably the Maldros at this point. Um, so... Uh, free votes for your MLAs. Like, that's quite all right to say that as your, uh, as your, uh, one of your policies, but when you're actually there, what does that really mean to us? If our MLA is, ooh, <laughs> our MLA, I'll back up, if our MLA is, uh, uh, has a right to vote against a, a way that we don't like, and we're going to put some pressure on him or her, what is it actually going to mean for that MLA to have a free vote? So if you could explain that a little bit more, and remember, I'm a cynic, okay? <laughs> Lucky Terry. Um, let me say that that is an absolute nailed down, screwed down, solid plank in our party is that every MLA will have a free vote. Now, managing that, there's a process for doing that, and, uh, and it, it will be, uh, it, it's not complex, but it, it's explained very well in, our, uh, in one of our documents, and I can't remember which one it is, but we tell you how we're going to do that. But we've already had free votes in the legislature. We, we've been in that there now for two years. I mean, quite frankly, we're auditioning 
for the role of government. And we're demonstrating through our behavior what you can expect from us. And we've had issues that have come up. I, I said that, uh, that we voted against uh, Bills 45 and 46. I don't think every one of our 17 MLAs did. Uh, the ones who weren't going to vote the way that we as a caucus felt was the appropriate response, all they had to do was inform the leader and say, Danielle, uh, in my constituency, that wouldn't be what the, the way that they would want me to vote. So I'm voting in favor of the bill. So we've demonstrated, we've walked the talk. Okay. Next sniper. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm Edward Thomas. Uh, an interesting aspect, well, thank you for coming. Uh, You're welcome. I appreciate that you stand up for what you believe, so do I. There's um, an interesting aspect of your talk is the recall of MLAs. What percentage of the voters do you need to recall them? Because if it's 20%, but if it's 51% plus one, how do you get that many people to vote? So if you can explain the details, then it would clarify my question. Thank you. I will explain what I understand, and again, I'll call on my expert uh, and dear friend, Paul Hinman, who keeps me from telling inappropriate jokes at gatherings like this, and also gives me facts when I need them. It won't be 50% plus one. It will be something like a third of the, uh, of the voters uh, who would have to then uh, sign the petition or whatever the process would be is that about right, Paul, a third? Yeah. Uh, and if a third of the voters uh, felt like uh, I wasn't doing a good job, then, then I, would be, uh, I would be recalled. You'd hold my feet to the fire. Maybe, maybe really put me in front of a firing squad. I don't know. But I wouldn't be able to keep doing that. And you'd have the right to, to see that someone more representative of your perspective was actually listening to you and voting the way you want them to. Now, that's what I think that the, the Parliament was originally set up to accomplish in the legislature. And I just listened to a talk by Peter Lougheed from the 2000, excuse me, the 1984 annual general meeting of the PC party. And one of the things that he pointed out there that differentiated the party then, and you'll see where it's deteriorated to, was the interesting thing about our party, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, is that it's not the cabinet that decides what bills are going to be put forward. It's the caucus. We discuss that in caucus, and we decide, the caucus decides what things that the government should be going forward, and then the government is not the 60 PC MLAs. The government is the premier and the cabinet. But in this case, uh, the Premier Lougheed's approach was, I take my marching orders from my caucus who are speaking on behalf of the citizens of Alberta. So that's the, that's the way we go. Long answer to a short question. If I may, I have a supplementary question, which is related to it. Would that be one-third of the votes that voted you in as MLA? I don't know whether it's one-third of the votes that voted for me or one-third of the votes in the... Uh... Well, that's okay. If you don't know... We no, don't but, but Paul does. Yeah, Paul, Paul knows everything. <laughs> he does. Well, I, I actually put forward a private member's bill on voter recall. And, and again, when you don't want it so low that anybody, you know, whether 5 or 10% of the people who are upset can call a, a, a by-election and, and retract someone, but you don't want it so high that it can be achievable. And we had our own alderman here uh, in Lethbridge that I, I think would have been recalled very quickly if one-third of the electorate could do that. But what, what we will do is we'll start with a provisional bill that will be one-third uh, if there's 20,000 people in an area, it would be one-third, so, you know, 
about 6,600 people. But we'll, we'll move it if it needs to be moved. I mean, what we want to do is be able to serve the people. We don't want it so high that it isn't achievable, but yet if it was only 20% and then that MLA ran again and got re-elected, we'd know that, you know what, it's not really serving it. We want it high enough that it keeps the frivolous ones out there, but, but yet low enough that it can be achievable uh, in, in circumstances that... Well, it's going to start at one. It's going to start at one third of the electorate, and it might have to go down. Thanks, Paul. Hi there. Uh, my name is Joseph. Very really, uh, simplistic question. Your position, your party's position on MLAs that switch parties after you get reelected or elected. Our position on that. Yes, I'd be hiding. Well, we welcome them. Because no, it's, no, never, what, what, it's never our guys going the other way. Yeah, the other way, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, but I'm saying that's very theoretical. Anyway, what would we do? Well, obviously, we, they have the freedom to do that. We can't prevent them. It, it just would be shocking if it actually happened. When you've got, Why would somebody that can have a free vote want to jump ship and go to a party where their vote is whipped? I mean... That's not a person that was smart enough to apply for the job in the first place, if you ask me. Gary, Art Sanford. Yeah. Um, one of the controversies that's been going on recently in the Alberta government is the declaration of uh, public servants making over 100000 a year. My question is, are you in favor of that? But I want to give a little bit of an outline about that, too. First thing we need to realize, I was a city alderman for many years, nine years, and uh, we are a child of the provincial government. They can make the rules, they can fire the whole council if they want. So if you are going to do that, should it carry over to all public servants? And the third part question of that is, should it carry over to all of our frontline workers in law enforcement, teaching and health, frontline workers who make it over 100,000 a year? There's lots of them. That's a very good question. And interestingly enough, uh, I had a a, a little bit of a conversation with Guy Smith, the president of AUPE, as I mentioned, and that topic did come up. And uh, he said that it's been very helpful uh, for all Albertans, but certainly for the union, to see that so-called sunshine list. An interesting aspect of that sunshine list, Art and everyone, is that it really hasn't revealed all of the people who are being paid more than 100000 There's more, more revelations to come. And do I think that it should be extended to other people in the public service? Well, personally, I think that anybody that's getting money from the taxpayers should be obligated to, or should be willing to allow uh, their friends and neighbors and all other taxpayers to know how much they're making. Now, there's some freedom of information and there's some there's some personal aspects of that that will, will make that hard to do, but that doesn't mean that if you set the bar at the right level, it shouldn't be done. So thanks for the question. And the MGA, Municipal Government Act, is under review, and uh, we have struck a committee, a part of which I am within our caucus, uh, to examine that. And, and that's an interesting thing, and I'll bring it up in, in our co committee meeting. Thank you very much. Gary, uh, Terry Shillington, uh, thank you very much for being here. Uh, I know you had to cancel something else uh, in faraway Calgary to uh, make this, so appreciate that. I'm happy and I'm and honored. Appreciate to. the accountability. Uh, my question is a little more theoretical. Um, 
and it has to do with climate warming. And it was a revelation to me in the last provincial election that the conservative government under Alison Redford actually believed in climate warming and the human impact on climate warming. Uh, although I, I haven't seen much, in, once, I haven't seen that conviction inform their policies around the environment. I really haven't. And uh, and then there was the scuffle by one or two of your prospective MLAs about their views on several things. And now it appears that Danielle Smith has had a bit of a conversion, and now she too believes in climate warming and the human impact. Uh, but I'm, I'm my curiosity is a where you stand personally. I'm not sure where the party really stands, uh, and I'm not sure more importantly whether it informs uh, government policy around around oil production and the way we manage and administer the tar sands and things related to that. So maybe you can lead me out of the wilderness uh, into some clarity about that. Well, I'm certainly no Moses, but thank you for the opportunity. Um, that's a very good question, and there, it's multi-layered. Uh, and I'll do my best uh, to answer each part of it. And if I've missed something, please let me know. First of all, uh, my own position on climate change and the human impact on it is that it's really up to scientists. And I've read things on both sides. So for me, it's, uh, it, it isn't resolved, uh, but for me, it's resolved that it matters to the clients of our oil companies and our resource purchasers. So the, the science of climate change may not be settled to everybody's liking, and I leave that up to the scientists to do that. I don't see that as a politician's job. But as a politician, we have the responsibility to, to react to the needs and wishes of our customers. And so what I, what I said is the science uh, of, uh, of climate change may not be settled, but the science of selling is. And so if we want to sell our resources and have them accepted globally, we need to demonstrate the fact that we are being good stewards of the environment. I think everybody believes that we should be good stewards of the environment, that we shouldn't waste, that we have precious things like water and clean air and things like that, that we need to be respectful of. And our, our laws should be sufficient to provide that guarantee to us without being so overburdensome that they prevent uh, employers who own companies uh, from actually having work to do. So it's a fine line. And I'm trying to walk a fine line politically, as you can probably tell. But that's the reality. Uh, there are, if the government were serious, it would do what, what we propose. It would make uh, power generating, natural gas fired power generating stations closer to the users, thus reducing or almost eliminating the need for $16 billion of untended power, untendered power lines. What a waste. And we've got abundant natural gas, and natural gas is a, is a, is a very clean burning hydrocarbon compared to uh, what's currently providing the most standard uh, electrical energy generation for us. So that's one thing we do. We look at environmentally friendly ways to develop uh, hydropower. And, and I was part of a group that actually studied a proposal for, uh, for uh, developing a, a hydroelectric hydroelectric power uh, north in, in northeastern Alberta. And the environmental impact was very low. And uh, it would produce uh, certainly sufficient electricity to uh, prevent 
the widespread uh, cogeneration that we're currently seeing uh, electrical users uh, revert to or, or, or go to simply about of economic necessity. One of the things that government seems to ignore on a regular basis is the the unintended consequences of actions that they take. We've got uh, Lethbridge Ironworks here in Lethbridge who are being rendered uncompetitive in their marketplace and they're competing globally. It's not just a local business, uh, you know, selling something to me and you. And businesses, most businesses have global alternatives. So they're going to go to jurisdictions that are more friendly. And so we have to strike that balance. and. It it's, isn't going to mean that everybody's going to be happy, but the thing I like about our Wild Rose Caucus, I describe us as principled pragmatists. We know that you can't be way out here or way out there and actually move forward and get things done. So governing is the art of compromise, and you need to be careful that you aren't compromising everything. There are some principles that you're going to die on, but there are other principles that you need to move closer to agreement uh, so you can get agreement so you can move forward. Um, I could probably say more, but uh, well, let me just say a couple of other things. But some of the things that the government has done have been ludicrous in terms of trying to trying to uh, present a, a public image of being uh, environmentally friendly and concerned about global warming. Pumping, uh, paying Shell Oil, the polluter, let's say, three, quarter, uh, three quarters of a billion dollars to pump CO2 into the ground. That's unproven technology. And why would you give a company that's got more money than God three quarters of a million of our money? What could billion? Three quarters of a billion. Did I say that or did I say million? Billion. So $750 million. What could we be doing with that? You think that could help uh, improve health service? You think that would could be used in classrooms? Do you think we'd have the same concern about P3 schools or P3 roads or discussions about toll roads if you had that kind of money available? But that's what they spent on dubious technology to be able to claim, oh, look how environmentally friendly we are. That's just one thing, pretty big thing. But it's things like that that are happening that we don't hear about. Uh, but we do dig, it, dig down deep enough when we're up there on your behalf so that we want to put a stop to those kinds of things. But a Wild Rose government would be environmentally friendly, uh, but we would be doing the things that actually make a difference to our quality of air and water and things like that. Terry, is that... You're welcome. Okay. Gary, I'd like to thank you for coming to uh, speak to us today. We're out of time. It's perfect. We've received two MLAs for the price of one today. <laughs> Paul. Thank heaven for Paul. And uh, I'm supposed to put in a special plug. Tonight's speakers, two finalists, Courtney Regier and Abby Morningbull, are supposed to be uh, well worth 